right, guys, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what episode we're on at this point. It's been a little bit. I think the last one we did was shoulder in this past February. Today, we're going to be talking about all uh, about pain medications. And I have my usual co-host with me, Dr. Derek Miles, who's a PT out at Stanford, but we'll probably be changing that soon. I also have Michael Amato, who is a PT out at Boston PT and Wellness. How's it going, guys? Good morning. Doing well, Mike. I'm also joined by uh, some of you guys may have heard him before. <laughs> He's this, this guy that's on the internet tends to rant every once in a while. Uh, we may have had him on here like once. I don't know. Hopefully you guys have heard of him. Uh, we have Dr. Austin Baraki with us today. How's it going, Austin? What's up, man? Doing okay. Good deal. Where Where are you at right now, Austin? Uh, I'm currently in Fort Polk, Louisiana, just doing my usual bouncing back and forth between San Antonio for hospital work and, and here where my wife is. Nice. Yep. Is there any, uh, any recent updates you'd want to share with the audience? Recent updates? Um, nothing that immediately comes to mind. <laughs> I don't think so. All right. Yeah. I don't think any of us have much going on just with the pandemic. Derek, you're probably the one with the most updates just relocating your life. Yes, uh, I'm supposedly getting married in the next seven days and moving cross country in about 21. So just a few things going on. Right, right. It's minor events. Yeah. <laughs> Kim still has a few days to back out. Seven days. Yeah, it's it's coming to uh, draw to a close for sure. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Amato, do you have any any updates? Um, I've been running more. That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> That, that sounds like a painful event in and of itself. Oh, yeah. It's been a growing process for sure. <laughs> cool. Well, I don't, I don't have much. Uh, I'm still just trying to survive parenthood, realizing each day that I am a dad, in fact, and I do have an infant to help take care of. But outside of that, uh, same old, same old. So we'll dive into this topic. Uh, this is a, a pretty lengthy one. So just out of the gate, there is no way we could, like, in one hour of discussion amongst us, uh, and by us, I mean mostly Austin. Um, there's no way we could get all this covered. So we're going to hit some broad stroke stuff. And then hopefully you guys can find this information applicable as it relates to pain medication usage for acute and persistent pain states. Austin, at this point, I will turn it over to you, man. Yeah, well, thanks for uh, having me. I think this is a important topic and one that most people at least uh, have some degree of experience with, even if it's just, you know, taking some of their own over-the-counter analgesic medications at home for varying uh, symptoms or ailments. So um, the the way that we kind of thought to start this is talking about the different overall approaches that people take to treatment using pain medications. And the first one, as I just said, is kind of self-treatment. Like if you have some sort of a symptom that you deem sufficiently unpleasant to get off the couch and do something about, then you can go and you might take something that's over the counter in your medication cabinet. But beyond that, you know, you get into the medical world, uh, the, the prescription medication realm. And uh, one kind of paradigm that's been used to describe this kind of approach to managing pain has been through the lens of the, the WHO, World Health Organization's um, pain relief ladder, analgesic ladder. And this was actually formulated specifically to target kind of chronic cancer-related pain. Um, and, and the way it, it, it's kind of like a step-up approach where you first start out with 
milder agents, non-opioid agents, uh, maybe some alternative analgesic uh, uh, therapies. And then if that's not getting you sufficient relief, you kind of bump up the intensity. Technically, in their pain ladder, they would go to like a, a weak opioid, like a codeine or a tramadol, which I'll get to later, but I don't think either of those are medications that should like ever be prescribed. And then if you're not getting adequate relief at that level, then you bump it up to the third level, which is kind of the, the highest potency kind of quote unquote strong opioids um, with other kind of adjuvant and non-opioid agents. So you're kind of stepping up the therapy to achieve a uh, target of symptom relief. I think in the official documents, they say like until pain-free, which of course is its own whole rabbit hole that we um, have kind of addressed a bit before or until, you know, tolerable symptoms are achieved or you've reached your kind of symptom goal. Um, the other context in which people typically have some experience with pain medications is in the perioperative setting or around surgeries. Um, and this is a huge, another huge rabbit hole. Each of these are their own rabbit holes, obviously. And, and one of the things I always like to point out here is how there really isn't a clear kind of agreed upon way to approach this. There's really enormous variation uh, between, you know, hospital to hospital, region to region, even doctor to doctor across countries in how medications are used in the perioperative uh, setting. So, so one paper that came out last year, and I shared it at the time, but it was just really powerful. Some of the graphs that came out of it by LADHA, L-A-D-H-A and JAMA 2019, they did a cohort study of well over 200,000 patients who, had un who were undergoing very routine surgical procedures like their gallbladder, appendix removal, meniscectomies, unfortunately, some other things. And, and they showed basically that the U.S. and Canada had overwhelmingly the highest rates of opioid prescriptions for most of these really fairly minor, minimally invasive kind of surgical procedures, like around the 80% range of patients who are filling opioid prescriptions compared to Sweden, where it was like maybe 10%, 15%, something like that. Um, so substantially lower. And that is not because the Swedes are, you know, just like more hardcore stoic people or something like that inherently. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a cultural thing. It's kind of the way that they tend to practice in that area. And a lot of it might have to do with patient expectations and maybe what people tell each other about their surgeries and, and, and things like that that lead to certain expectations about, you know, whether opioids are going to be necessary to achieve symptom control. And we'll get into the opioid piece uh, again a little bit later. And, and finally, you know, physicians who go through medical training the way they're taught to approach this in terms of, you know, there's all these different agents available um, and how do we pick between them? Uh, the, the overarching thinking is, well, if we can identify a particular cause or a particular mechanism for somebody's pain, we might be able to use kind of some pharmacologic targeting for, say, a particular receptor system or neurotransmitter system that we think may be involved. Is it inflammatory pain, nociceptive pain, neuropathic pain? You know, in other words, trying to target the specific type of quote unquote pain. And anybody who's listened to this podcast on previous episodes might have a, have a sense that that is a tall order in lots of cases. It's a, it's a murky topic. It's a lot harder to come to a clear identification of that. And um, I would argue, uh, particularly after going through all this and, and preparing this stuff, that most physicians are really woefully unaware of the state of the evidence with respect to a lot of these kind of pain uh, medications and, and treatments in terms of their efficacy, comparative efficacy, risk benefit, particularly in combination and things like that. <clears throat> Mike, did you want to address this uh, <laughs> next <Yeah>. thing here? <laughs> yeah, so... As far as like um, 
what are we treating as it relates to to pain, especially from like a medication standpoint? Yeah, this idea of primary pain versus secondary. I know that oh, you've yeah. been you've been getting into this recently with some of the IASP stuff. Yeah, so it's um, I was curious of how it would relate to the medication topic as well because it's interesting. Like the way the IASP is basically going at this point, especially as it relates to classifying. Because, uh, you know, we have this dichotomy of acute versus persistent. And I, don't, I don't see this dichotomy going away for right or wrong. And we don't need to get into that discussion because it's a whole other topic. But uh, typically acute is going to be that someone has a readily identifiable, quote unquote, tissue trauma or pathophysiological issue ongoing that we can identify pretty easily. And then uh, we're looking for tissue recovery status or, quote unquote, healing within a pre-specified time, which is albeit somewhat arbitrary. And so that's much more acute pain things where I think for this context, it would be very easy to talk about like uh, pain medication usage uh, perioperatively. I think that makes a lot of sense. And if I recall correctly, a lot of data has been adapted from that cohort uh, based on studying what happens with surgical outcomes and pain medication usage. And then the secondary classification is persistent pain. And kind of the way the ISP has gone with this is they're basically saying like you have a primary persistent pain and you have secondary and primary is, is pretty much like we can't find anything underlying despite all of our searching. So we're going to label it primary persistent pain. And, and if you're familiar, if you've ever helped anyone dealing with headaches, you kind of go through this classification system because that's what it was. That was what it was adapted from. So you're looking to see if someone presents with a migraine. Is this migraine that's just primary? So there's no underlying cause that we can find. Or is it secondary, meaning there's an underlying disease status that's that's ongoing that's causing the symptom of a migraine? Same same exact thought process with secondary pain states. Is there something underlying that we should identify that would then lead us to treat this differently? And so my kind of biggest question in this regard as it relates to pain medication is uh, to what you said, Austin. I don't I don't know how effective we are at saying is this nociceptive is this neuropathic neuropathic to me makes a little more sense because there's some very specific things like diabetes that's ongoing where we have peripheral neuropathy um in other states but then like inflammatory seems tossed around at least a lot to me with oh people yeah i talked to <laughs> for sure <laughs> yeah that's definitely a, a very murky topic i would agree when there's operational so, assumption that inflammation is always negative and we forget that that's one of the key things that you need just to heal in general and stopping it like at large is probably going to have some relatively negative consequences if you get too good at stopping inflammation. Yeah. Especially in like my mind, just because of our audience goes to exercise, right? Like we need, we, we need some type of recovery mechanism because of exercise. So uh, I think for our audience too, that I'm sure we'll get into a lot is, is taking anti-inflammatories, especially to cope with exercise. Oh, yeah. Yep. I have some plans to discuss that for sure. I figured. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so when we're approaching the pain medication like arsenal that we have available to us, there are tons of different medications and there's different um, uh, ways to go about this. The way I've chosen to kind of broke it down, uh, break it down is, is just over uh, big categories of medications, including like kind of the route of administration. So whether it's something that's uh, topically applied to a particular painful area, local uh, locally injected treatments, for example, um, which are another option, uh, oral uh, systemic therapies. So you take a medication by mouth and then other what we call parenteral or outside the kind of GI tract where they're not absorbed that way. They're injected, you know, intramuscularly or IV or, or something else like that. And there's all, you know, the whole spectrum here. So kind of to start out with the, the initial 
uh, options we have um, are local anesthetics. And these are medications like lidocaine. A lot of people may have experienced this. Um, for example, if they went to get some dental work done, they'll use those kind of medications uh, to facilitate uh, whatever dental work an individual is undergoing. They're also used in combination with steroids when people are given like a corticosteroid injection into a joint. They're used for nerve blocks. They're used for epidural uh, analgesia in pregnancy, uh, in labor. Um, and these basically work by blocking sodium channels in the nerves, and that affects how the nociceptors function and how effectively they're able to transmit their uh, nociceptive signals uh, uh, upstream. Um, and these are, you know, they have transient effects. So you inject the medication to a particular area and, you know, everybody's experienced this. It wears off shortly after. Um, so they're useful for locally invasive procedures. I do a handful of these and use lidocaine to facilitate the, the ease of doing the procedure and decreasing pain and, and discomfort during the procedure, but wears off pretty quickly. So they're useful in that context, but not so much for treating, you know, ongoing uh, pain issues, uh, definitely not for like persistent pain issues. And in fact, there are some adverse effects to, to consider when, when using these things as well that I think Derek wanted to touch on. For the, yeah, for the injection side of it, it, I had mentioned that I wanted to at least like put a rock across the water on this. There was a lot of discussion initially for post-operative pain control, for total knee, total knee arthro, or arthroplasty and like ACL reconstruction, where they would use ephemeral nerve block and basically you would have no sensation, so not as much pain postoperatively. And if you looked at the original studies on this, your outcomes were in the first seven days you did have decreased opioid use, um, you did have decreased report of pain, but we forget about some of the long-term sequela out of that to where you started having some negative long-term consequences, such as for an ACL reconstruction, one of our primary return to support criteria is your quadriceps index. And there were issues with individuals who underwent ephemeral nerve block uh, having a prolonged time to have their strength return. So, you know, it does come into a bit of a discussion of, is it worth having decreased pain in the first seven days of surgery if you're going to miss your return to sport criteria or even to take it a step further if it's going to impede you getting one of the most protective out or measures towards your outcome back, such as regaining your quadriceps strength. So I think it's an issue to where we tend to think about it in terms of I want to feel good right now and we forget that you know, we have a really good healing process in place and doing things with which to facilitate feeling good in the moment may have some long-term consequences for our overall healing and health. Derek, um, do you, I, I have one question. If, I don't, I know we don't want to go too far down this road, but uh, I feel like you have some, some knowledge we're sharing on this because uh, I know you deal with a lot of ACLs. How informed do you think patients are about the potential negative effects for using these preoperatively? Well, uh, I mean, part of it is if you've ever heard a preoperative consent, it often sounds like a uh, auctioneer going through it. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, there's a lot of really big words thrown at you really quick. And there are, of course, negative consequences. And it's hard, I think, to weigh for a lot of patients, truly informed consent, because as Austin mentioned, if a lot of the people offering the informed consent can't really speak to the true probability of interaction, it's really hard for a patient to interpret that. 
And then there is a high degree of heterogeneity in the overall approach to it to where, you know, working in different hospital systems, the relationship between anesthesia and ortho or interventional radiology and ortho or, you know, just even things like that are going to influence what is chosen, what the best method is. And there is this desire to control pain early on and that in of itself, I'm sure raised your blood pressure, just using the phrase control pain, (laughs) but, but out of it though, like, We've now moved from a extended femoral nerve block to a single shot adductor canal block, and they're mm-hmm. showing that like pain relief is about the same, and it doesn't affect the quadriceps so much. But it still has this question of like, do we need to be doing this in the first place? And yeah, the real question I think is going to come out of a lot of this conversation today is we have this desire to intervene whenever we think we can stop something that has a like negative side to it, such as pain. But we often forget about the like law of unintended consequences of things outside of that are going to go down. Like Austin, when I was reading your outline for this, I still remember having to like learn the Cox two pathway in biochemistry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. when you first learn it, it's like a eight step process. And then you go a little bit farther out and like, then you see the actual pathway and there's like a thousand steps interacting yeah. with it. Yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. No, uh, oh yeah. I, I was just going to say uh, one last thing on that, Derek. Um, and it, I don't think it's um, like patients just not being informed. I think we also have like providers and I'm sure Austin's going to talk about this as well. Uh, and he's already touched on it a little bit as providers may simply just not also be aware of those potential negative consequences with using those injections preoperatively. Yeah. I mean, they're not seeing these people, you know, uh, for nine months after their surgery for their PACL rehab with Derek. So, (laughs) so um, we can move on to some of the other uh, local uh, agents. So topical capsaicin is one that is commonly prescribed. This is a uh, derived from ingredients in the hot chili peppers. And basically it works to kind of desensitize the nociceptors. It alters their neurotransmission abilities through a few fancy mechanisms. And because of that, it's used uh, often for quote unquote neuropathic pain, uh, like post-herpetic neuralgia, other painful neuropathies, things like that, as well as uh, on superficial joints for like osteoarthritis. And unsurprisingly, coming from that hot chili pepper, some of the side effects are pretty sig- some potentially significant local skin reactions. Patients tend to report a lot of burning, stinging, redness, uh, uh, and discomfort in the area. And um, so it's generally not super well tolerated. Um, and the evidence on it, we have a few, a small handful of some randomized trials, some of which show some benefit over placebo, but that required like upwards of 12 weeks of consistent use, like four times a day, which is difficult to adhere to. And then the other thing to point out there is that because when you put it on your skin, you get this immediate, you know, burning, stinging kind of sensation that makes it difficult to do effectively blinded studies, because as soon as you put it on your skin, you're unblinded to whether you're in the capsaicin group or the placebo group, unless they find some other kind of like burning cream that doesn't have analgesic properties to it. So it makes it a little difficult to do, you know, high quality 
uh, blinded trials on this. So overall, I don't tend to use this very much. I don't find it super impressive in, in practice. Of course, if somebody does find benefit from it, um, then they're in, you know, typically would be in a, in the minority or, or I find this unlikely to be adopted on a super broad scale. And then pro tip, definitely don't touch your eyes or your genitals when using capsaicin. (laughs) (laughs) Have you guys ever used uh, this stuff for anything? I have not, but it makes me think of like the off chance that I cut like jalapenos or something and then forgot and touched my eyes. So yeah, exactly like that. (laughs) I mean, I've, I've had an out of body experience, uh, drinking ghost pepper sauce, but that's, there you go. I was also sprayed in the face when I was going through in-house training as a, for law enforcement with OC sprays. I'm imagining it's quite similar, just way extreme. Yeah. 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 So not my favorite one. Um, the other, the other topical therapy that you'll see, uh, recommended or used quite a lot is topical NSAID. Uh, so non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac uh, gel. And these are most commonly used for osteoarthritis, typically on superficial joints, like mainly the knees is where these tend to get used the most. Um, there's some evidence that they can give some benefit for like mild acute sprains and strains, uh, in the early phase. Um, and so there's actually a fair amount of evidence on these, um, and and uh, we, we can provide some of the references, but there's some evidence that they provide some benefits over placebo in the first two weeks, and then beyond that, the benefits compared to placebo basically disappear. Um, in fact, uh, when they were just given like the benign um, kind of placebo carrier cream, over half of patients re- receiving the topical placebo reported benefit. So there's a pretty significant uh, placebo effect to these, and and I think it's probably just related to you know, contextual effects and really the expectations of like, oh, you're applying this analgesic right on the area that hurts, like you're putting it right on the source. Mm -hmm. And so that tends to generate a pretty substantial placebo response. There's really not much evidence for any other chronic uh, pain or persistent pain conditions, not really any evidence for back pain, wouldn't use it for tendinopathy. Um, So pretty limited kind of scope of, of use here for these. And, and so, um, there's not a ton of adverse effects to be concerned about with these. They're generally pretty well tolerated. They're not really absorbed very much systemically to cause, you know, other kind of, uh, side effects. Um, and so I would just say that they're generally safe. Uh, efficacy is probably limited to just short-term benefits in some of these conditions, and there's a huge placebo response. Um, so if somebody really wants to use these and they're effective for them as an alternative to a systemic agent, then I would take that deal um, in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, compared to taking an oral or a systemic medication that has the potential for greater side effects. But I wouldn't expect this to be effective for like ongoing long-term therapy, and I would definitely not emphasize it over other more effective things. Mm-hmm anything on that or we can move to our next one just for context what would you consider like other more effective things the things that we tend to recommend for, for managing that's what, I, pain. That's what so, I figured but yeah yeah exactly so so I'm not gonna you know tell them hey just slather this cream on your knees and keep training the same way you're training if I think that there's something that can be modified with respect to the way you're you're training or you know if I haven't gone through the process of educating you about you know pain and and uh, trying to get you to feel like you have a little more self-efficacy some control over the the situation things like that I wouldn't I wouldn't put those after, you know, this initial therapy. If I only think that this therapy may provide you some benefit over placebo for like a week or two, and then, (laughs) you know, it's not doing much beyond that. So good deal. Do you feel like this is one of those where the patient asks you about it as much as people have an inclination to initially recommend it? 
Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't necessarily go out of my way to, to use this. However, if I get the sense that the patient is really looking for something to do from a pharmacologic standpoint, because obviously a lot of patients are, particularly those who are, you know, in the real world, not in our like barbell medicine bubble, um, because they're, you know, that's kind of culturally the way we, the way we are brought up to, to, uh, use these kind of agents to control our symptoms. Then if I think that, you know, I may get some initial response out of it and I'm expecting that this is a pain, uh, you know, an issue that is is likely to resolve in relatively short order, i.e. it's not going to likely be like a, you know, I'm, I'm not treating a chronic cancer related pain with a topical therapy that's going to stop working after like, you know, a week or two, um, then it's probably reasonable to try uh, before jumping to more systemic agents. So uh, now we're going to move on to some of the other, like I said, these systemic ones that are taken either by mouth or can be given IV, injections, things like that. And so we'll start with acetaminophen in the U.S., paracetamol in other parts of the world, or Tylenol is the brand name that most people know. Um, and it's typically found in combination with cough and cold medicines, if you read the label carefully. And it also is sometimes combined with opioids. So like hydrocodone and acetaminophen combination is known as Norco, oxycodone and acetaminophen combination is known as Percocet. Um, so, so they're oftentimes combined with the hope or the idea that by including a bit of acetaminophen, you can get a little bit of added effect that maybe makes you not need quite as much opioid. Of course, there are trade-offs to that as well. For example, people not knowing that acetaminophen is combined, and so they might be taking acetaminophen separately, and they might end up getting too much. And yeah, I've seen that uh, unfortunately happen uh, before with some toxicity from that. But hmm. the way these medications work is pretty poorly understood. They're thought to work mainly in the brain um, uh, or in the nervous system to have some analgesic and, and uh, fever-lowering effects, but they are not uh, anti-inflammatory. And so um, sometimes you'll hear people describe Tylenol as an NSAID or as an anti-inflammatory drug. It is neither of those things. Uh, in fact, it, any sort of effects it has, uh, per, like in the in the body, is actually inhibited by local inflammation. So, like inflammation effectively like disables it in the tissues. So, um, it's more of a centrally kind of acting medication. And so. There's a, a quite a bit of research on it, and most of it is mixed. Um, there's some evidence of benefit in perioperative pain uh, situations to reduce the need for, for opioids. Um, it can provide some benefit in acute pain scenarios. It's studied in a lot of emergency department kind of uh, acute pain presentation uh, uh, studies. The downside is that a lot of those studies, when you look at you know how they, they, they study different analgesic options for patients showing up to an ER with pain, it's like Tylenol versus an NSAID versus an opioid, and then they recheck pain like two hours later. And so, you know, of course, they're going to show up at 10 out of 10 pain. And statistically, like what's most likely to happen two hours later is their pain level is likely to go down kind of a typical yeah. regression to the mean thing. I think they'd probably argue that it's not ethical to do like just a no treatment group um, in that in that kind of a context. Um, and there's relatively few placebo controlled studies of that particular scenario. Um, these are, are often also used for headaches, whether tension type headaches or they're used as like migraine abortives. However, uh, patients who have regular uh, headache syndromes who to use these medications, uh, uh, you know, very regularly, like multiple times a week, for example, um, they can actually start to develop rebound headache syndromes or what's called a medication overuse headache. And uh, this is really a very can be a very challenging thing to to deal with once it's developed because you basically have to get the person to stop using analgesics to manage their headaches when they're having yeah. like these rebound severe medication overuse headaches because the other options like I'm not going to switch you to an opioid for your headache because I want you to stop taking Tylenol for your headaches so very difficult situation and so for people who have like you know severe primary headache syndromes migraine syndromes things like that there would be other kind of options that would be discussed 
besides just straight analgesics for kind of prophylaxis to try to reduce the headache burden. But this is something that's definitely underrecognized. Some people experience headaches all the time. Maybe they have, you know, common snares would be, let's say somebody, you know, they have obesity, they have uh, untreated sleep apnea. So they wake up with headaches every morning, then they start taking Tylenol for their headaches that are related to their sleep apnea. And they take it every day to the point where they start developing rebound medication overuse headaches. And now they're in like a whole very complicated, difficult to manage uh, situation where you have to get the person off of this medication entirely. So, um, <clears throat> Other areas uh, with respect to Tylenol or acetaminophen paracetamol use for chronic osteoarthritis-related uh, pain, no benefit. This has been studied against placebo in a number of, of trials for acute low back pain, no benefit. For chronic low back pain, no benefit, all compared to placebo. So, of course, people in the audience who are saying, I had back pain, I took it, and it made me feel better, that's, you know, no one's challenging your experience on that. But in all the placebo-controlled studies where we have placebo versus acetaminophen, we don't really see any difference in how those perform. So it might just be more of the ritual and expectations of taking a medication um, when you're in that mm -hmm. scenario. Um, and there's also no role for acetaminophen in treating uh, tendinopathy um, related issues. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, I think that the, it's a really commonly used medication for a few reasons. Number one, because overall safety profile is pretty good. If you're not taking over like 4,000 milligrams a day, or you don't yeah. do an acute overdose, it's pretty safe as far as, you know, the big concern is liver uh, related toxicity. However, you know, one underrecognized thing is for people, I know some people who take a dose or a couple doses of it every single day chronically. And um, that uh, may be a less risky option compared to some other options if you are going to take a pain medication every single day, but there is some dose related uh, uh, kidney related complications that it can occur from chronic long term daily use. Um, and then the only other one, and I mentioned this just because I've seen it a handful of times, particularly in our older population. I know we have some older folks in our audience, and these are people who often end up on other medications for other medical conditions. For example, they might be on blood thinners for various reasons. And people who take warfarin uh, as a blood thinner, acetaminophen actually has an under-recognized drug interaction with this. I had, I had one case a few months ago of a guy who um, had some a shoulder injury, and then he started taking a boatload of Tylenol for it, and then things got worse and worse and worse, and he ended up coming in with a, with a heme arthrosis. He bled into his shoulder mm -hmm. uh, because his warfarin levels got too high. So drug interactions, you know, Tylenol is not one that's thought to be notorious for it, but that's one that's potentially dangerous. So Overall, for, for acetaminophen, you know, for mild acute pain, it, but not low back pain, it may have some, some benefit, but no real significant role for um, chronic or persistent pain issues. Um, in general, for short-term short use, I think it's fine. We probably would recommend against high-dose high dose, uh, uh, use and, and chronic uh, daily use, over long particularly over long periods of time with this one. And it yeah. might be worth touching on, Austin, since you actually laid out the 4,000 milligrams, what a typical dose is out of it, because I think that's just kind of a nebulous number. In, oh, sure. In books. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so how many pills a day or, or what our typical doses would be? Yeah. So a regular kind of st typical standard strength dose is 325 milligrams. If you're taking the quote unquote like extra strength acetaminophen, that's usually 500 milligrams. And so you can see that would add up to quite a few pills. But the other side of this is, again, that acetaminophen is often com combined with a lot of other medications. So if you have a cold or a flu, for example, and you're taking two, you know, a thousand milligrams. So like, like two extra strength tablets, you know, three times a day. And then on top of that, you're taking like a cough and cold medication, uh, uh multiple times a day, then you can easily end up kind of exceeding 
uh, that in that context if you're not careful in reading your reading your labels. Austin is um, is it Excedrin migraine that's stacked with like caffeine and is it acetaminophen also or? Uh, yeah, so I, I think that Excedrin migraine does have that in it. Um, I would have to double check the the label on that. Another one that's commonly used for migraine symptoms is called Fioracet or Fiorinol. These also have some other kind of combination type products. Uh, some contain aspirin, some contain acetaminophen, each of which have their own kind of unique considerations. But Excedrin migraine would be a perfect example of a medication that if you're using it every single day, then you have poor kind of migraine control and there'd be other things that we'd yeah. want to use before you start developing medication overuse headaches from it. Yeah, that was 200. totally novel to me. Sorry, it's 250 milligrams of acetaminophen, 250 milligrams of aspirin, 65 milligrams of caffeine. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yep. So that's the, the acetaminophen uh, piece. Um, the next one would be NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to contrast with steroidal anti-inflammatories, which we'll talk about later as corticosteroids. So these include medications most people are familiar with, like aspirin, ibuprofen, naproxen, Aleve, Advil, things like that. And there are different routes that these can be administered. Derek, you mentioned the COX enzyme, the cyclooxygenase enzyme. Basically, that's an enzyme that's involved in generating uh, local inflammatory responses and inflammation itself, local inflammation is one of the mechanisms that can sensitize your nociceptors. So kind of reduce their threshold for, for firing basically. And so by inhibiting that local inflammatory response, we can mitigate the, uh, the local inflammatory response and mitigate that sensitization of nociceptors for better or for worse. Um, and of course these enzymes are located throughout the body. And so not only, um, do there are there effects on, on, pain and inflammation, as well as uh, fever lowering, uh, but also in the gastrointestinal tract, stomach and intestines, there's some effects on blood clotting, kidney, kidney blood flow, things like that. So that uh, ends up resulting in a whole host of potential side effects from these. Um, I will say that these medications have been shown to have some benefits in both acute and uh, uh, persistent low back pain. But the benefits are somewhat modest, I would say. Some of the data that I've found, and of course it's mixed, but one found um, an average of about six points of pain reduction on a 0 to 100 scale for acute back pain, which is not a ton. This is from the Traeger paper in BJS, uh, I think it's BJSM uh, from uh, last year. Uh, in more persistent uh, uh, low back pain, it was about uh, 10 or 11 points on a scale of one, 1 to 100. So for whatever that's worth as well, and there's some trade-offs that we'll get to. For osteoarthritis, they're definitely shown to be more effective than acetaminophen, uh, particularly for short-term use or just as-needed use. Um, but we don't have actually a ton of good evidence for chronic, like daily long-term use, even though a substantial proportion of patients use them that way. Um, for clearly inflammatory conditions, so Mike, we, we were, as we were talking about this earlier with like Im inflammation yeah. being a nebulous thing, this is like, you know, red, hot, swollen, tender joints from like rheumatoid arthritis, a clear like, you know, uh, rheumatic issue like ankylosing spondylitis, erosive, yep. OA, things like that. These are situations where these kind of anti-inflammatories um, can have, uh, can definitely have some benefit. It's been studied in a lot of these contexts. On the other hand, tendinopathy is a situation where people might have pain in a particular area. And if you talk to lifters, they're like, oh, my, uh, my, my patellar tendon is, is inflamed just because it's painful without actual, you know, significant degree of uh, uh, inflammation going on there. And not only are NSAIDs ineffective for treating tendinopathy, they potentially have some harmful effects with respect to, to healing, regeneration, recovery from that condition. So that's why, you know, we want to be careful when we use the term in inflammation and inflammatory 
to be kind of accurate with what's going on. Because a lot of things that people think are inflamed, they, they use that word almost as a surrogate for like, it hurts, um, yes. which is not accurate. Definitely not accurate. Yeah. And you see a lot of, and it's not just medications, but you see a lot of interventions that are, are uh, like advocated for to patients or patients advocating for themselves just based on that narrative without any, you know, observable or identifiable metric for inflammation. Yep. Yeah, I would agree. So that makes it tough. Um, And then the flip side of the coin with, with NSAIDs are, are there risks. And so there's toxicity that can be had throughout the whole gastrointestinal tract from the esophagus all the way through the colon. You can get ulcers, bleeding, other complications. And I actually see these fairly regularly uh, in the hospital. Um, there are, you know, I've, I've seen it, you know, obviously a lot in older folks, people who are already on blood thinners who have other medical conditions, but have definitely seen, you know, gastritis and ulcers and things like that in younger people, particularly like the military folks who are going through training and something hurts and the they, they put them on high dose, you know, Motrin or ibuprofen to take for like two or three weeks and they come in with a, with a bleeding stomach ulcer. Um, so that can definitely happen across the age and health range. Um, on the other hand, uh, some of the blood clotting effects can increase the risk of cardiovascular events like heart attacks and strokes. This is a, in general, it's a small increase in risk. However, it is affected by the patient's baseline risk. So in other words, if you have somebody who is already a high cardiovascular risk person, maybe they've had a heart attack before, taking a lot of NSAIDs, they're definitely at significantly higher risk from, from using those compared to not using them. Whereas, you know, all of us are at some cardiovascular risk, even if we're like perfectly healthy, but the increase is like so negligible that it's not a ton to worry about there. Um, and then the last one would be kidney issues. Um, and so this is a bit of a interesting area only insofar as, you know, historically patients with kidney issues have been told like never touch an NSAID ever. And Typically, and even still these days, if somebody has chronic kidney disease, nobody will give them an NSAID and they'll get put on, you know, straight onto an opioid instead. Mm-hmm. But, but there's growing kind of emerging evidence because everybody's like, we got to protect the kidneys. And of course, now people are realizing, oh, well, there's trade-offs there too. Maybe, maybe the harms of the opioids are potentially worse compared to, you know, if we do maybe moderate dosing, intermittent use, maybe, you know, just a couple times a week on only on an as needed basis versus like, you know, we still wouldn't want high dose daily use. And maybe they're not as at as high of risk with respect to their kidneys as we thought. And there's some some interesting data on this from the precision trial in 2016 and a new paper that came out actually last month in the American Journal of Kidney Disease is looking at um, kind of comparing NSAIDs and opioids and things like that with outcomes with respect to people's kidneys. So um, lots of potential toxicities, the GI stuff is definitely real. The cardiovascular stuff is definitely real, but especially for high-risk people, the kidney-related complications, um, I think, have a lot more nuance than has historically been recognized. And so with NSAIDs, these kind of medications, uh, my overall thought on them is that they're generally safe for, 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 for most people when used within recommended dose ranges, and really, most importantly, for short periods of time. Um, and, and ideally they don't have a ton of other very, uh, high risk medical conditions. Um, but what we really don't want to see what I don't like to see is people using like the very high doses. Um, an example of that would be like, if you're using the ibuprofen and you're taking 800 milligrams three or four times a day, I view that as very high dosing. Uh, chronic daily use of these medications, I prefer not to see. I pref- you know, if they're going to be used, for example, in osteoarthritis, a patient with osteoarthritis, just a periodic as needed, um, rather than chronic high dose uh, or, or chronic daily use uh, would not be would not be preferred. 
I'll say there are a few small, you know, situations where under, uh, you know, physician's care that uh, high dose use for an ongoing period of time may be recommended, but those are kind of niche cases that we don't need to get into here. Um, whereas what we're, the audience we're talking to, a lot of lifters, for example, you know, we see people who they just start to develop pain and they just use NSAIDs to mask their symptoms so they can keep doing what they do, what they've been doing that probably led to some of the discomfort that they're experiencing, which is a really, really stupid approach. We hear people talk about, you know, using the phrase vitamin I for ibuprofen, talking about, um, you know, their ibuprofen protocols. Anytime something comes up, oh, boom, 800 TID or three times a day of ibuprofen for like a week or two weeks. And then they just keep beating themselves into the ground in their training. All of this is super unwise. Uh, we wouldn't recommend it, but of course it's hard to convince people that maybe they should, you know, take a little bit of weight off the bar, um, or, you know, make some other modifications maybe, uh, to their, to their training rather than, you know, throwing medications at the issue and expecting it to just disappear and never come back. Yeah. I imagine you guys see a lot of that in the rehab side of things. I mean, I remember yeah. like a, a narrative in like athletic training school. I mean, similar to what you were saying, and I, I doubt there's much truth to it. That's what you're alluding to, but like that you needed to take like that three times a day, five days a week dosage to get like the true anti-inflammatory effect. And like as athletic training students, I'm pretty sure we were like educated on that that we could recommend that to athletes. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me a little uncomfortable. It is, it is true that there's some dose, <laughs> dose ranges that can alter analgesic versus anti-inflammatory effects. But again, like you're presuming that the athletic trainer can identify like true inflammation that needs to be targeted that way. Yeah. You know, that, I imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so well, I think this goes yeah. back to just the overall, are you checking the boxes on the things you should be doing versus trying to skip those steps with something that is, high risk, low reward, really, if you look at the evidence. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, all right. So for the big, the big time here, yeah. uh, opioids. So these are medications um, that people probably heard about these days, things like morphine, hydrocodone, oxycodone, hydromorphone, fentanyl, tramadol. Um, they can be delivered a whole host of different routes by mouth, IV, by injection, uh, by, you know, transdermal patches and things like that. And so these hit opioid receptors that are all over the place in the body have a ton of different effects that generate, of course, a ton of the different side effects. Um, and so these medications, you know, in acute pain, they can be quite effective for reducing pain. Um, I'll say that in those situations for like severe acute pain, there's not a ton of like no treatment or, or placebo groups to compare again, like the regression to the mean piece we talked about earlier. But you know, I end up using these frequently if I have patients with, you know, bad uh, pancreatitis, uh, kidney stone related issues, things like that, that are where the pain is not being controlled by, you know, uh, things like NSAIDs and things like that when when they're safe to, to use for a given patient. Um, but there are, I'll say, you know, if you look uh, for comparative evidence in a lot of these conditions that are typically treated with opioids, comparing non-opioid versus opioid treatment, um, including things like, say, kidney stone related pain, um, then uh, uh, there's comparable efficacy that's being found in a lot of these papers comparing it, for example, NSAIDs to, to opioids, which is interesting and hopefully will we'll change practice uh, a bit more over time. Mm -hmm. But Opioids in the context of, you know, some of the more common things that we're dealing with here, like osteoarthritis, we have a pretty large body of uh, evidence at this point showing that they really have a quite small effect size on pain compared to the placebo. So uh, the one meta-analysis I found of 22 trials on opioids with, with, in OA found an average of about a 0.7 out of 10 
point reduction in pain and a 0.6 out of 10 improvement in function on like a 1 to 10 Womax scale for osteoarthritis. Both of these were deemed smaller than the minimal uh, clinically important difference. So unimpressive effect benefits, whereas the risks in these groups, they had a relative risk of like three to four for adverse effects and dropout side effects from the, from the medication. So uh, things are definitely tilting in the, you know, harm greater than benefit on that front. And, um, for, for chronic pain, there was actually a brand new systematic review of 115 trials that actually I found that just came out uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and I would recommend reading to anybody who's interested in this by Chu and, and colleagues. And I'll just quote what he says here. It says, opioids were associated with small benefits versus placebo and short-term pain function sleep quality. There was small dose-dependent effect on pain, but effects were attenuated or decreased at longer follow-up. Um, they were associated with increased risk of discontinuation due to adverse events, so higher rates of side effects. There were no differences between opioids and non-opioids in pain, function, or other short-term outcomes. Uh, and um, the combination therapy was associated with little improvement at short-term follow-up uh, versus an opioid alone. And there wasn't really much randomized data looking at long-term benefits of opioids versus placebo. So kind of unimpressive there for chronic pain-related uh, issues. And then the perioperative uh, discussion is huge and really complicated and really scary when you look at more of the evidence on this, particularly given what I cited earlier about how, you know, like eight, around 80% of people in the U.S. after like minimally invasive surgeries are filling prescriptions for opioids versus like a tiny fraction of people in other countries. Um, basically, you know, opioids prescribed perioperatively can can result in long-term use in patients regardless of whether they've been exposed to opioids in the past. Um, and uh, oh, it's estimated that over 60% of people who get 90 days of opioids after a surgery will, are, will still be on opioids like years later. Um, and they actually have evidence that each additional week of taking opioids after surgery increases your ultimate risk of opioid misuse abuse, overdose, things like that by 20%. And this has even been studied even more granularly down to like the per dose level. So like for every dose of opioids that somebody takes after surgery, there is a quantifiable increase in risk of still being on that opioid like a year later, um, which is very concerning given how prevalent these prescriptions are um, and, and kind of how casually they're doled out often for even low risk or minimally invasive surgeries and things like that. Uh, and so this is in the context of risks that can really accumulate over time, uh, the longer people are on these. Um, so sedation, drowsiness, dizziness, of course, people hopefully recognize that these medications slow down your respiratory rate or your breathing rate. Um, and that's one of the, that's the primary way that people end up dying from opioid overdoses. So if people have other respiratory or lung related conditions like sleep apnea, COPD, this can be, you know, on stacking problems on top of one another. There are GI side effects like severe opioid-induced constipation um, that can have its own complications, depression, hormone-related side effects like inducing hypogonadism, low testosterone in men. Um, one of the ones that you guys are probably most aware of and concerned about is opioid-induced hyperalgesia, where yeah. being on opioids chronically can actually increase people's kind of like generalized pain sensitivity, uh, so to speak, which is kind of paradoxical and would seem to defeat the purpose of being on these, particularly for the long term. Um, and this is in the context of a medication that can induce tolerance, where you start needing higher and higher doses to get the same effect, physical dependence, withdrawal, and ultimately there's an increased risk of death uh, from being on these long term. 
and so, you know, we the evidence is pretty clear that opioid analgesia, the pain relief you get from them, decreases over time while the risks accumulate over time, especially as tolerance develops, your doses increase, and you might end up on other interacting medications, particularly in the context of like that WHO pain ladder, for example, where they might want to add other adjuvant agents, um, things like, uh, uh, say, gabapentin or something like that, that have added that, that have other effects that can increase uh, risks uh, uh, to people. So, really, really not a good situation, particularly with long-term use of opioid uh, medications for persistent pain issues. And for medical students and physicians in the audience, they may, you know, kind of like I was before, taught that, say, medications like tramadol might be a milder opioid, might be a little bit better, or codeine might be a milder opioid a little bit better, because and that's actually reflected in the WHO's pain ladder. Those medications are in, like, step two versus step three. Um, but neither of those are better. <laughs> they have variable they're metabolized differently by people with different kind of genetic uh, uh, makeups and different ethnicities. They have variable efficacy. They hit other receptors, so they interact with a bunch of different medications. And so I actually don't prescribe tramadol or codeine ever to anybody. Um, if I think an opioid is warranted, I'll use one of the other ones that are more predictable, and I might just use a tiny dose of it versus using either of those medications. But yeah, I see no reason for those to be used at all. You know, it's, it's interesting looking at the WHO pain relief ladder or the WHO's pain relief ladder in that it is kind of a, an increasing step and it might be almost better visually framed to healthcare providers as like steps downward because the further down you're going, the harder it's going to be to get out of the hole. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But of course, you know, the context for that is cancer-related pain, and in some cases, there there is not ultimately getting out of the hole, and people are just aiming for uh, symptom relief over the course of maybe a, a terminal uh, kind of malignant malignancy-related um, issue. But definitely, you know, there's a huge, huge, huge amount of trade-offs that have historically been under-recognized. I mean, if you looking back at the history of how opioids came to be used so heavily, tracing it back back to the, you know, letters and, and articles in New England Journal in the 80s and, and 90s, I mean... I was even taught early on that they're really the, the the concerns for addiction were overblown with these medications and things like that. So, big, big, big problems there, and we're trying to dig ourselves. We're, we're trying to dig the whole country out of uh, the whole world out of that hole uh, with opioids. Yeah. So, we need to be super careful with these medications. And um, so, to be clear, to reiterate, uh, pain relief decreases with time. Risks increase over time. Risks are definitely uh, out, uh, outweigh benefits for persistent related pain issues. Not super effective for quote unquote neuropathic pain. Um, uh, not not recommended for uh, nonspecific low back pain, and uh, they're probably heavily overused in a lot of acute pain scenarios compared to what could be used as an alternative and post perioperative uh, situations, because um, those are those are high risk situations for patients continuing to be on these medications long term. All right. Uh, so we're almost there. I think we have just two categories left. Mm. So uh, other medications that people will uh, come across include uh, antidepressants and anti-epileptic medications. So things like gabapentin and pregabalin are uh, medications that uh, are often used for these neuropathic type pain syndromes. So diabetic neuropathy, post-herpetic neuralgia, they're often used for radiculopathy, in fact, because people view radiculopathy as a neuropathic syndrome. Um, and the other antidepressants like venlafaxine, duloxetine, tricyclic antidepressants are also used for a lot of these issues as well. 
The issue with these is that all of them hit a huge variety of receptors. So even, you know, when we talk about SSRIs, for example, as like selective uh, serotonin uh, uh, related uh, uh, drugs, we think of them as being selective, but none of these are super selective. They all hit a ton of different receptors, and that results in a variety of inter- drug interactions and side effects and things like that that we need to keep in mind. Um, but there was a great paper by Matheson uh, in, uh, uh, I think it was uh, BMJ, just from last month, um, yeah. where they looked at gabapentin and pregabalin. This got shared around a lot. And they said that, you know, there is some moderate quality evidence for those uh, medications to be used in these uh Uh, neuropathic conditions like post-herpetic neuralgia and diabetic neuropathy compared to placebo. But what I think a lot of clinicians don't recognize is the actual efficacy here. So they they quoted that four out of 10 people taking pregabalin and three out of 10 people taking gabapentin for eight weeks or longer achieve at least 50% pain relief. So that might be a bit underwhelming to some clinicians who might think that every patient that shows up with uh, diabetic neuropathy, that they start on gabapentin or pregabalin is going to get improvement from it. Um, pain, pain was relieved by one third for 50% of the participants. So they're, you know, uh, uh, in some people, it's a pretty modest uh, effect. Um, And specifically in that paper, they said that these medications are ineffective for low back pain for sciatica or radiculopathy. Um, So that's, again, a super common scenario where these medications get used because doctors think, oh, radiculopathy, that's a neuropathic issue. I'm going to start a neuropathic agent. So not effective for that, not effective for spinal stenosis, and their use for these conditions is not recommended. In fact, when they looked at the risks of these medications, they said that two out of three people on these meds stopped them due to adverse effects. There's a bunch of adverse effects like CNS, uh, uh, sedation, dizziness, falls, uh, kind of orthostatic hypotension. So the issues where, you know, you stand up, your blood pressure falls and you might fall, pass out, something like that. Uh, you can get swelling in the extremities from this, other drug interactions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, these agents can have some efficacy when used in very specific defined scenarios, um, again, like diabetic neuropathy, for example, but they are very often used kind of quote unquote off label. So in other, you know, across uh, indications or in other uses for other pain related issues. Um, and in general, much, much, much less evidence of, ev- of efficacy in a lot of those scenarios and really high uh, rates of adverse effects, particularly when used in combination. So imagine somebody is on an opioid that already has these like depressant type effects, and then you stack one of these medications on, um, and you're just stacking these effects, particularly as you add more and more of these things on. So would not use these ever for uh, low back pain with or without radiculopathy. Um, would use them in very specific scenarios of clear kind of neuropathic syndromes. And the antidepressants can have some benefits in some other contexts, but particularly when there's another indication for the patient being on an antidepressant, that would be a good situation to think about them in. But yeah. Austin, do you think the possibility uh, is what what we were seeing with like lumbar radiculopathy is people were not wanting to use opioids. So then they defaulted to these drugs. And then now we're seeing like that shouldn't be done either. Is it a, a need to get away from opioids that we see like an uptick in these drugs usage off label? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one part of it. I mean, I even saw this happen in, with other medications. Like when I was in residency, they were at, they were increasing barriers to prescribing some of the, you know, the hydrocodones and oxycodones. And people were like, oh, well, I don't have to go through all those hoops to prescribe trimadol, or I don't have to prescribe the mm-hmm. jump all those hoops to prescribe codeine, which again, like I said, are worse medications. And then if barriers were erected to that, you know, somebody's going to look for their next thing and they'll say, oh, gabapentin um, has some analgesic effects. And so, so there's definitely one piece of it is definitely trying to get away from opioids, which I think is a good, 
goal, of course. Um, but of course, you want the thing that you're using to have some efficacy as well. And the the thinking yeah. the thinking here, of course, is the patient says they have burning pain. Burning pain to a doctor sounds like neur- neuropathy. Neuropathy means they're going to get gabapentin or pregabalin, <laughs> regardless yeah. of what the evidence yeah. actually shows for those indications. Yeah. So it's a need of doing something and, and I get it like wanting to help the person with their suffering, but then we need to be cautious that we're using good efficacious evidence to do that. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so the last ones we have here, so the muscle relaxers, quote, I put those in heavy big time air quotes. These are mm-hmm. medications like cyclobenzaprine or flexoril, tizanidine, methocarbamol, et cetera. Um, and, and the reason I put them in air quotes is that these are all centrally acting drugs. And what I mean by that is they act in the brain um, and they primarily work by having like sedating type effects. So I just refer to these as tranquilizers. I don't really refer to them as muscle relaxers. Um, m- medications that we have that actually relax muscles are like the paralytics that somebody might get like before they get intubated or something. And so we wouldn't want to give those to people to actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, relax or, or paralyze their muscles. Instead, these just kind of like knock your ass out. Um, and it turns out that when these have been studied in acute low back pain, they do actually reduce pain. There's an average of like a 21 point reduction on a zero to hundred scale, which is fairly significant as far as pain medications go for acute low back pain. Um, there's really no benefit for anything else outside of that with respect to pain. They're sometimes used for these conditions that cause like spasticity. Um, again, probably just because people think that they relax things debatable. Um, but, uh, so for acute low back pain, however, even though they have some efficacy there in reducing pain, there have been a number of studies now that basically take one of these medications and give it a, a, give patients naproxen, which is just an NSAID, a leave, or they get a, you know naproxen plus placebo versus naproxen plus a muscle relaxer, and they see no difference. So basically, the idea is that these medications don't seem to add much on top of what people are getting just from like an NSAID alone, meaning that there's no benefit to combination therapy. They probably have similar efficacy on their own, one versus the other, um, versus combining them and stacking side effects. And so if it is deemed, you know, necessary to, or, or desirable to, to initiate a medication, um, in that context, then you'd be picking between one or the other based on side effect profiles and things like that, rather than stacking them on top of one another, given these, these findings of a lack of kind of additive or synergistic, uh, benefit. Um, cause there's definitely some significant side effects here. Again, since they're tranquilizers, you can imagine all the side effects, sedation, drowsiness, dizziness, falls, dry mouth, low blood pressure, things like that, that can be pretty problematic, particularly for older folks who are already on other medicines that can interact and lower their blood pressure and increase the risk of falls and fractures and things like that. So, this would be, if used, it would be as you know, on its own, very short term, like no more than a few doses. Um, in in the majority of cases, noting the significant side effect profile, would not use for any persistent pain related issue. Would not stack with a bunch of other agents either. Um, and that's really all there I would have to say on these medications. It would be interesting if, when we have kind of our formation of algorithms, because what ends up happening if you look in the literature most of the time is just an arrow. If you have X do why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've been reading a lot more in the, the psychological literature recently, and they talk about like mediation effects mm-hmm. and they tend to do this statistical analysis where they'll assign like a, a number to how much of an effect it plays. And I think mm-hmm. to your point earlier, where you were saying um, one of the medications had like 
an infecting 30% of people. If on that little arrow, you had a, a 0.3 there to where people could start interpreting that as like, this isn't a panacea that gets everyone. It, it yep. is 30% effective. It could probably help a little bit more with the overall thinking and selection of where you're going. Yeah, I agree. I think that we vastly, I mean, we've talked about this before. We all overestimate the beneficial effects that we can provide and, and underestimate the harms and the risks. That's pretty well established. So, um, and, and nowhere is that more apparent than in the final medication category of, <laughs> of uh, corticosteroids. This includes medicines like prednisone, um, which is taken uh, by mouth, uh, Medrol, dose packs people might be more familiar with, or triamcinolone, which is often used as part of corticosteroid injections. And we're going to leave injections for a separate podcast that we'll do another time. Uh, this one is strictly on systemic uh, corticosteroids or glucocorticoids. Uh, these medications work by hitting the glucocorticoid receptor, which is in basically every cell in your throughout your body. Um, and they're very, very potent anti-inflammatory agents. Um, they actually work a bit upstream of the COX pathway that the NSAIDs hit. Um, and they're, like I said, they're pretty potent, but they have tons of adverse effects as well. So these can be useful when treating, uh, uh, you know, flare ups of clear autoimmune inflammatory syndrome. So somebody has a major, you know, rheumatoid arthritis flare or, or one of these other kinds of rheumatic diseases that flare up. Um, but you'd want to use them in the lowest dose that you can and for the shortest term that you can to achieve remission of your condition and get them back onto like steroid sparing therapy, like treatments that don't involve steroids to minimize the risk of these side effects. However, if you ask enough people, um, you're going to come across people who have experienced acute nonspecific low back pain who have been given steroids or medrol dose packs. You'll, experience, you'll come across people who have radiculopathy who've been given steroids because they just assume that there's like swelling or inflammation or something going on in there. Uh, chronic low back pain, like flare ups of that. I, myself, when I was a swimmer, unsurprisingly, I developed, uh, some, uh, subacromial, what is the, what is the current word? Subacromial related shoulder pain or something like that. Shoulder, yeah, I basically sort of... developed shoulder pain. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's all that matters. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I got looking back, I got prescribed a steroid taper and I just looked back, uh, you know, dumbfounded that that was the, the, the guy's treatment approach at the time. Um, knowing what I know now, because these medications have tons of systemic risks. Of course, I was like, you know, 19 or 20 at the time. So mm -hmm. not much to worry about. Um, low risk for, from his standpoint. But uh, the risks include uh, hyperglycemia, so driving up blood sugar. And this can have big consequences in people who are already diabetic. Um, increasing risk of infection and other complications, uh, immunosuppression. Um, these actually suppress some of your, some of your immunity. So there's increased risk of infection than sepsis. They actually have catabolic effects on lean body mass, including bone and skeletal muscle. So long-term use of these medicines, increased risk of osteoporosis, fracture, increased risk of blood clotting, um, a host of things to be concerned about here. Uh, and so this is important to recognize in the context that we have a plenty of evidence that there's no benefit to these medicines for acute nonspecific low back pain. There's no benefit to these medicines for radiculopathy. There's no benefit to these medicines for chronic low back pain. Um, so there are very, very few pain related situations where I would be using these. I mean, technically if somebody had, you know, back pain that I could, uh, that I ended up finding that they had a, a, a tumor in their spinal cord or something like that, then that's a different scenario. But, mm. uh, all, all of these super, super common ones that we see uh, situations with respect to back pain, there's no role for these medications, but they are used all the time. I just had a client recently who had a flare up of some, some back uh, pain related symptoms and his doctor offered to prescribe him that. Unfortunately, he was sharp enough to say, no, thanks. I'm, I got this. I'm good. So, <laughs> yeah. 
so that's that's the those are the overall medications that I wanted to to cover for this. Those are some of the most common ones that people will see. There are tons of others that aren't being affected uh, dis- discussed. So ketamine is like a fancy one that's being researched more. Cannabinoids, CBD stuff like that. I'm not touching it right now. And then there are tons of interventional approaches. So if you meet uh, an interventional pain uh, specialist or a PM&R doctors and things like that, they'll start talking about a whole bunch of other things that, you know, we're not necessarily getting into here. So this was like a limited, you know, quick and dirty review of a bunch of like the most common pain related medications that, that are used in practice that people might come across. Um, and, and one thing that I often bring up when, you know, we've, it's been a bit of a theme here, but the, the language uh, and the words we use when we're talking about this stuff is really interesting in you know to to now recognizing this perceive how the words that patients use to describe their symptoms can influence prescribers like prescribing habits so if a yeah. patient if a patient describes something as feeling inflamed uh you know the prescriber is more likely to prescribe an anti-inflammatory if a patient describes i mean i've had patients who say i'm experiencing nerve pain and some doctors might say oh okay here's some gabapentin. Whereas Mm -hmm. I will usually ask, can you explain what you mean by that? Tell me a bit more about what you're experiencing so I can get a better handle on this rather than just assuming that you know that, you know, you're telling me, oh, I'm experiencing an acute neuropathy. Um, And same (laughs) thing with with spasms. People will say, you know, my back is spasmed. And of course, what do you think that results in? Ends up people getting prescribed those muscle relaxers because that seems like the logical thing. Even though, again, these are just like arbitrary labels that we're giving these medications uh, independent of their mechanisms of action in some cases so just an interesting yeah. thing that i think about that part is interesting because like i've i've heard it from like a diagnostic standpoint from patients like where like they present with like quote-unquote muscle spasm doctor gives a muscle relaxant exactly yeah. it doesn't have an effect so then they think <laughs> oh it must not be a muscle problem and then yeah. they go back and they dig deeper and you know uh, yeah so on and so forth <clears throat> yes the whole sensation perception uh uh complicated topic of course <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that's how you end up in the answer donut so was there uh oh so i'd say you know just to give some conclusions for for uh some of the people in the audience who are lifters and, and athletes i mean i think that there are situations when people experience acute pain um where the use of some of these agents may be reasonable thing to do um i think probably if I had my choice in the matter, uh, I would go for the, some of the earlier ones we discussed. Maybe that might be one of the topical uh, agents or a short-term use, like a very short-term use of an NSAID or an acetaminophen or something if you experience some relief with those. However, it is not the case that those are absolutely necessary. In other words, those are not going to be fixing anything. That's more for like symptom tolerance. For example, if you need to like want to be able to sleep or something, if that's a big, big concern. But I would not recommend if you experience pain, you start taking boatloads of these medicines to suppress your symptoms. So again, you keep doing exactly what you've been doing. Like this is a, an adjunct. This is like a, a, a sidekick to the big, more important things that we recommend doing for, for pain related issues that we've talked about at length in all of our other material. These medicines don't fix things and they don't obviate the need for, you know, the proper education and, and the activity to, to tolerance and the load management concerns and all the other stuff that we, that we talk about a lot. So need to be smart with the use of these things um, and, and uh, definitely be careful with a lot of them. Do you yeah. guys have anything else you would add before some, some questions? 
No, I think that was great. I mean, selfishly, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on here and do this is I, I think people oftentimes hear us talk uh, publicly or write, and they think we're like anti-imaging or anti-surgery or, or in this case, anti-meds. And it's more of us just advocating for like using it in appropriate situations than anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I were strictly anti-imaging uh, or anti-meds, I would have, uh, you know, missed and harmed a whole lot of people <laughs> over the years. So yeah. there are definitely scenarios where they need to be used. But I think that, you know, what we want to get away from is people viewing those things as necessarily the most important part of the approach to a, a pain-related issue, whereas we view them, you know, more as very selective tools to be used in particular scenarios or as just like, again, adjunctives like some of these analgesics, whereas there are like way bigger and more important things that often need to be addressed with people when they're dealing with, you know, typical pain-related issues, be it, you know, osteoarthritis or tendinopathy or nonspecific pains in other areas, et cetera. So, yeah. Good job, man. I think you did excellent. Cool. Thanks. Um, do you guys mind if I ask a broad sweeping kind of metaphysical question that I have typed out here? <laughs> what does Dickenstein think about NSAID use? That's pretty close. <laughs> so, uh, and I touched on this a little bit earlier, like one of my bigger fears when we're looking at efficacy of interventions, we're like, oh, this really has a lot of risk. We should get away with it. Like with opioids is the same thing we were talking about with like pregabalin is we're, we're defaulting to something else that turns out to not have a lot of efficacy. So I'm just going to read the question I wrote because I don't think I could articulate it uh, adequately. We tend to be outspoken against the utilization of non-efficacious modalities, specifically passive ones, uh, for example, like joint manipulations, ISTM, taping, so on and so forth. If we were to plot out the outcomes between drug management for persistent pain specifically versus these other passive options, would we see a large difference in outcomes uh, clinically meaningful to rationalize drug usage? How about compared to modifiable variables such as belief systems, physical activity, stress coping mechanisms, and sleep? Or is it possible we'd see similar outcomes? So in essence, asking the, the risk versus benefit question of drug management for persistent pain versus passive modalities we tend to speak out of, given the model that we're in is often doing something to the patient. Does that make sense, what I'm asking? Yes. I don't know who you want to uh, to <laughs> attack. Anybody. <laughs> I'm just curious you guys' thoughts. I think uh, it is plausible that if we compared, particularly for persistent pain issues, if we compared some of the uh, medication effects uh, against some of these passive modalities, assuming that, well, medications are, are to, an, to an extent passive as well, um, then it is plausible to me that we would see similar outcomes. Of course, this is going to be dependent on the patient's beliefs and expectations about the the other kind of passive or manual or whatever modality that they're that they're undergoing. And so that's a context where it's like if we're resigning ourselves to this kind of an approach to things, and it's either going to be medications or this form of passive therapy that the patient has a belief in and thus finds effective for them, then I think we'd probably see similar outcomes with respect to pain uh, um, and potentially function with probably lower risks uh, by avoiding some of the some of the medications. That's just a hypothesis that, of course, is, again, heavily uh, qualified by the patient's beliefs and expectations on the matter. Because, you know, if, if, if we go more to a lot of the patient population that I might see, um, the heavily multi-morbid, you know, terminal cancer folks and things like that, then um, there may already be a heavily ingrained belief and expectation that medications are absolutely necessary and that, you know, a lot of these other things might not have any effect on them. And that would alter, of course, the ultimate effect that we would observe. I mean, from like a 
clinical standpoint, I, I think I get more caught up in like the heuristics of it that like just because you're not doing something that's more intervening like a medication or a surgical procedure, then it like automatically reduces the risk to zero for your intervention. So I, you know, I think weighing, weighing the risks is a hard thing to do because we don't have a lot of evidence that's comparing a lot of that stuff, but you need to at least take that critical thinking process a step further. Like just because you're using a less intervening modality doesn't mean that there is no risk or even that if you're just using exercise or just using education, I know that's kind of a broad oversimplification, but like education still has risk. Prescribing exercise still has risk. So I don't think it just gets you off scot-free. And then I think that that's just kind of where my head's at with that stuff, kind of talking to other clinicians and bringing in students and talking to students about how they're, you know, essentially making decisions on how they prescribe their treatment. I think we have this propensity towards at least it's not, well, at least it's not surgery. At least it's not an injection. At least it's not. And then you start looking at the difficulty in, it's, it's interesting to have this conversation with physicians and other therapists to where we tend to have more of a stance towards an active treatment and education. What you'll hear a lot of times in response to that is, well, I can't do nothing for the patient. And it's almost seen as sitting there and listening to someone is inherently nothing. And I think that's yeah. kind of undermining a lot of the interaction itself. And Austin, to your point, I think, you know, for those of us that have worked in hospitals, what we forget is that it's pretty rarely any healthcare practitioner sitting in the room with the patient for an extended period of time. Like you guys will round on patients um, as a physical therapist will come do their ambulatory training or whatever needs to be done. But for the most part, we don't see the evolution of their symptoms throughout the course of a day. We just see these really small snapshots. And often in the same regard, if you're getting contacted as a physician, it's likely because there's been some type of spike yeah. in that symptoms. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe we should just sit there and talk to people <laughs> and hear what's going on a little bit more. Uh, I know that's a really novel approach to humanity in general, but yeah, there's definitely a big tendency, like you suggested to anytime there is, um, basically anything happens, uh, there's an inclination to try to fix it. Or if there's a symptom that's expressed, there's an immediate desire to try to treat it. Um, and nurses will even call us all the time, say, hey, this patient's experiencing bloating. And the resident will be like, all right, I want to treat them with this. And I'm like, wait, 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 like, really? Like, do you think that this is absolutely, you know, necessary to be treated with the medication? And so there's this concept, uh, that, and I've been meaning to, to write a little bit more about this, but uh, there's an article series, I think it was out of Australia, called The the Art of Deliberate Clinical Inertia, uh, basically intentionally, you know, kind of letting things run their course in some situations, not necessarily jumping the gun to try to treat every single thing that happens um, or, ev or everything that changes. Um, and, and that's definitely a big, it, it, it's difficult when you're viewed as the person who is there to alleviate suffering, or you're viewed as the person who is there to fix people, if you're the, the physician, to make the call that, you know, maybe this isn't something that absolutely needs to be treated right now with uh, medication or with some some intervention. Maybe this is one of those, you know, 
things that's part of being life a uh, uh, part of part of being alive that is going to you know run its course in short order and and to to no ultimate ill effect yeah it's uh i'll be writing about the this somewhat i think what we're broadly talking about is a bit of a therapeutic illusion um the you know, patient presents you've got to do something to them and that's their expectation so yep yeah i think this is good just to kind of talk about it uh i don't know that I have a particular answer. I think we're all just trying to figure this out, how best to help people with pain-related suffering as it relates to this topic. We have a couple of questions. I think we've probably answered the majority, majority of these. But, yeah, let, um, me, let me glance through them real quick. Uh, <laughs> I've already answered, yeah, several of these. Mm, this one we didn't handle. That's going to, the injections piece we're going to get to, uh, I think, yeah. another time. Uh so this one's kind of interesting. So this question, number seven there, I can probably try to tackle that one. Okay. Uh, go ahead. All right. So one of the questions, and these were just curated from Instagram. Uh, the person says, would be awesome to hear about gray areas regarding opioid prescription during inpatient. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, the, the idea here is that inpatients, people who have uh, met criteria to be admitted to a hospital, for uh, acute treatment of a, of a you know dangerous life threatening issue, um, that is a bit of a unique situation. And I'll say that for uh, acute admissions for these hot kind of hospitalized patients, uh, things tend to be quite a bit more liberal in terms of uh, our use of these kind of things. Um, Whereas things are a whole lot more stringent with respect to like discharge medications, for example. So if somebody's coming in with a pain related issue and we try some of our initial standard kind of therapies uh, and we're not getting uh, making much progress, I have no qualms at all about, you know, going to a higher potency um, agent or, or an IV opioid or something like that in an inpatient scenario. But if that transitions into a scenario where the, the patient is discussing wanting, you know, a, an ongoing prescription at the time of discharge to take home with them, then that becomes a much, much, much bigger deal. And often one that I'm, that I don't tend to entertain, uh, cause I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm often assessing the risks and benefits and typically the risks of, you know, setting the person on this path of ongoing opioid use is uh, outweighing the benefits. Of course, there are some situations where I do that too. It might be a palliative or a hospice scenario with somebody who has, uh, you know, a terminal malignancy or something like that. The other gray areas I would say are, of course, where we're worried about drug interactions, uh, about, um, you know, withdrawal related issues, things like that, that, that uh, can bring up some, some gray areas. And then, uh, one of the most challenging ones is scenarios where people already have like opioid use disorder uh, kind of issues, some some addiction issues, and they come in and they can sometimes uh, be demanding of, of uh, frequent high doses of, of IV opioids and things like that. And that can be a really difficult scenario. That's often one where I do end up going, like as Derek mentioned, and sitting down with the person and having an extensive conversation rather than, um, you know, giving them boatloads of, of IV opioids without a clear indication for that. So those are a few of the gray areas there that we can run into. But ultimately, you know, most acute inpatient stays are very short term. And so a couple doses of something that then stops at the time of discharge doesn't tend to present a huge barrier for, for most of us. Um, I'm sure that most physicians can probably could probably find ways to use other agents creatively to, to achieve similar effects. But that's kind of the way things are these days. Cool. So the next question is, uh, this is kind of a big one, I think, but 
With pain being important for feedback, could blunting it let us train too much and thus, quote unquote, injure ourselves? Do you guys want to tackle that one? <laughs> I I actually often see this like post-operatively where like a patient is educated to like take their pain medication, whether it's an opioid or non-opioid, like for the evaluation or even for like the first couple of weeks of treatment to like power through the rehab and get the most out of it. And so I often try to navigate that space a little bit and try to kind of explain to them, like, that's not really the point of the first couple of weeks is to like, you know, just put our heads down and crash through every wall that we come through that like, we're going to use like your symptom tolerance as feedback. Um, that's when I often try to like steer away from, I find that to be pretty common. Um, in like that kind of post post, uh, operative acute phase. Um, I don't know if, if that's something you hear a lot from your side, Austin, from like orthopedic surgeons. Oh yeah. Um, Telling patients t- timing their meds right before therapy and things like that. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely, yeah, is definitely I, a thing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if yeah. you have an opinion about that. <laughs> I mean, I've certainly been sent away from patients' rooms in the hospital and been deferred because they didn't have their medication at the proper time, according to what they believed it should be. And I think a lot of this comes down to this, um, like conversation of you'll hear, well, am I where I'm supposed to be? And especially in the post-operative sense, in the first few weeks afterwards, the the breadth of outcomes is just so wide. Some people are doing phenomenal. Some people are not. And it, you have to be able to look at it as, you know, by that six-week mark or 12-week mark, everybody starts kind of ending up in the same level. And it, it is the great, like, Douglas Adams, don't panic quote out of it, it of like you know we are where we are right now and the more we mask this the higher likelihood of you doing something you likely shouldn't be doing and you know especially like the easiest example for this for me would be like a uh, total knee where if you have this femoral nerve block you're not going to be or you're going to struggle much more to independently transfer so yes, your leg may feel better, but you're probably also putting in some positions that may not be the most efficacious for you earlier on. And it's much harder for you to ambulate around. So you, now we're more dependent upon therapy services in order to even get up and do something as simple as going to the restroom. Yep. Yep. I think that was good. <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that one. Um, the next one would be, are meds an appropriate resource to help people sleep in low back pain? Yeah, this is a tricky one. Um, I would not say that they are an appropriate, like, immediate first-line intervention uh, for this. I think that we've put out a ton of content as far as the initial approach to to low back pain and what we recommend for it. Uh, but if we're not uh, if we're running into ongoing issues there, I mean, as we discussed in our last month's research review with respect to, to sleep and how important it is for, for outcomes, um, in this, in, with respect to pain, as well as with respect to a ton of other health related outcomes, then I think that there's a discussion to be had about other options to approach this. The tricky part is when you say meds, like that's a big category, obviously with respect to what options there are available for, for sleep and some are objectively worse than others. Um, and so you'd have to be careful as far as what you're selecting, whether there is some other ongoing sleep disorder that is present that is uh, under addressed or unaddressed. Um, 
And that would be something that needs to be really individualized uh, with respect to a given patient, their situation, their symptoms, their um, uh, kind of uh, clinical context and what their actual sleep issue is. So I will say that they can be used in particular situations because sleep is definitely really important for this. However, um, there are lots of ways where you could harm people with this. So for example, you know, we mentioned earlier, like in the, uh, anti, uh, uh, the, the neuropathic agent category, we mentioned like the tricyclic antidepressants. So one in that category is called amitriptyline that's sometimes used in low doses at like at bedtime for sleep. Um, and it has some pain relieving effects. Um, it's sometimes used for migraines as well. So it's kind of, uh, you know, could be viewed as something that some people might consider in this context, but at the same time that hits like 10 different receptor systems in the brain and might cause a whole bunch of adverse effects. Uh, you know, again, like the dizziness, the drowsiness, the orthostatic hypotension. So if I have an, an older person who's on blood pressure meds and diuretics and they get up at night to go to the bathroom and fall and fracture their hip, cool. Like I made them go to sleep better <laughs> to help with their pain, but I caused all these other problems. So th again, this is a really complicated topic. And I would just say, um, I won't say never to that, but, uh, definitely not immediate first line. Like, Oh, you have back pain. Let me give you something so you can sleep right off the bat. That's not going to be my initial approach. Yeah, I think that was good. Um, the last one is, is there any, is there enough evidence to discuss the quote unquote poor responders to analgesic effects of opioids? <laughs> Uh, yeah. So that's one, that's something that I kind of alluded to a bit earlier. So one example of this is with, um, or two examples are with tramadol and, and codeine and that we all, you know, uh, uh, we all have these metabolic systems in our livers and, and kidneys that have, that help us with drug metabolism and distribution and elimination and things like that. And there are a variety of genetic, very, uh, you know, uh, differences between people, between ethnicities and things like that with respect to how they metabolize different medications. And there can, of course, be on top of that, you know, various mutations and polymorphisms and things like that that can affect how people metabolize these, these meds. Um, and so there are certain populations, for example, in whom if you give them one of those medications, they'll have no benefit, no effect, no analgesic effect from it. Um, whereas they might still get all the side effects <laughs> like, you know, that's kind of, kind of bad luck, but, um, because it has to do with, you know, uh, how they're metabolized into their, you know, act biologically active, uh, kind of forms and things like that. So there is definitely some variability across people from that standpoint. Um, I would just add though, that that doesn't account for all the variability that we see with respect to, you know, the effects of analgesic agents. I mean, we like that, uh, that chart that we we see before uh, that we've cited before from the Fillingham study, where they um, yeah. had the like the three hundred people <laughs> plotting their pain uh, intensity in response to like a standardized stimulus, you could probably have the same kind of a graph in terms of people's like you know pain improvement in response to receiving an analgesic medication, and that itself is the product of like every aspect of the experience. They're like prior experience with the pain meds the uh, context that the pain med is given in, what they're told about the med, the ritual of taking the pill, what the pill looks like, all kinds of things that can alter, you know, people's response to analgesic uh, medications, including opioids beyond just like how their liver is metabolizing it. So that's just like a small part of the, the puzzle, I would say. What's the, uh, I think it's Benedetti. What's the name of the, is it just placebo effects? Yeah. Benedetti's book. Uh, he's like the king of placebo research. So placebo effects. Yeah. I think the one I have is third edition that I got as a, as a gift. So. Yeah. It's a great, great text. One. Yep. Yeah. 
Well, cool, man. I really appreciate you taking time to come on here and talk to us today about this massive topic. Um, this is probably going to be like a 90 minute podcast. I think folks, there's a lot here. You should probably listen to it more than once. Um, and then I think, uh, Austin, you already mentioned, we may try to put together an article in the future for this. Yeah. Yeah. I think based on all the notes that I pulled together and references, I think it's worth turning it into an article so that even students and clinicians can, can see this stuff and have it as a reference. And then, um, yeah, maybe we can do another one on, on injections, uh, in the future. Yeah. I think that would be excellent. Great. Awesome. Thanks guys. Yeah. yeah. Thank you.